Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. You know, um, some songs just won't die, and for good reason. Well, welcome. My name is Tyler. I am one of the pastors here at Crosspoint, and it is my delight to open up the Word of God for us this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. You know, you won't be surprised when I tell you that each of us is prone to placing our hope in things other than God. Things like, and you will not be surprised about this either, money, relationships, health, or even a religious practice. But I think central to all of these things is an underlying hope in stability. The, the hope that if all will be as it should, and if all will remain that way in our life, then all will be well. We will live satisfactory, stable, hopeful lives. In the book of Isaiah, this is, however, the mindset that God has called Isaiah to confront. He has called Isaiah to reveal the misdeeds of Judah to expose the exchange that has taken place in their heart, to preserve their stability instead of their hope in God. And so through the prophet Isaiah, the question that the nation of Judah is being asked to answer here in this book boils down to this. What will deliver you? Now, before we look at something like this in the Old Testament in a major prophet, and I understand the book of Isaiah can be somewhat difficult to understand. It's long. It's old. I get it. But before we are tempted to self-righteousness, thinking, well, this really has nothing to do with me, I, I want to ensure you, and I want to remind myself, this is a word to us. And the question remains, where have we placed our hope? Look with me at Isaiah chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Here the prophet Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to you and we confess that we need you, that we need your Spirit to fill us, to give to us the ability to understand the height, the width, the depth, and the breadth of your counsel. Oh, Father, we don't desire to come into this room today to simply have more knowledge than when we came. Father, we come that we might know you better and that it might change our lives. And that through this change in our lives, the world might be changed through us, your people, your church. Father, we pray and ask that you would be pleased to do this through us today. And on behalf of all the the believers in this room, I, I beg of you, that you would even be pleased this very day, this very morning, to save an unbeliever amongst us because of your word and the power that resides in it alone. Father, be with us now that you would be glorified and that Christ would be exalted. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So why so much talk about hope? This passage is clearly about the glorious nature of a holy God. There is no doubt that the person at the center of this story is God himself in all of his splendor. So why talk about hope so much? Well, I think it's really quite simple. We ascribe glory to the things that we put hope in, and what we see worthy as glory, we worship. Now, to help you understand why that will make sense, we need to kind of understand a little bit of the underpinning of the cultural context of the book of Isaiah. In verse chapter 1, Isaiah tells us that Uzziah is king. He, he may be getting ready to die, or maybe he has already died, but I, Uzziah is king. Now, something about Uzziah is that he had a very long, about 50 years, and a very successful reign as a king in Judah. And for 40-some-odd years, Judah really had to worry about nothing. For 40-some years, Judah was on the up and up. And when the nation was divided, Israel to the north, they were on the up and up too. Things were looking really good for the Jews. There was, however, a problem. As they increased in their economic power and political power, something else happened simultaneously. Their dependency on the Lord also did something, and that is it decreased. But during this time, Egypt to the south and Assyria to the northeast, they are no threat. And so Judah, they are living large. There's, there's no one even that can come and even put pressure on them. They have access to the sea, Everyone has to go through them. They are living the life, right? This is exactly what God promised to Abraham. It's what he promised to David, Israel, and Judah. They are living the life that they were called to. And there are no problems. 
except one. In the last five years of Uzziah's reign, Assyria got a new ruler, and his name was Tiglath-Pileser III. Tiglath was a good ruler, and he decided that he, having all of the intelligence needed, having the power, having the personality, whatever it was, decided that he was going to start campaigning, both politically, economically, and militarily. And he succeeded. And so, where Judah was once standing high and mighty, now there's pressure, pressure coming from the north through Assyria. And they have to make a decision. And they make the wrong one. And so Isaiah is used by God to expose what is in Judah's heart. Are they going to preserve economic and political stability, or are they going to trust the Lord for deliverance? Now, why is this important? Why do we need to understand this context? Why do you even care? Maybe you've already fallen asleep. Why is it important? It's important because what we end up seeing in the book of Isaiah reveals to us what a glorious, holy God does with an unclean, rebellious people. And the answer to that question is everything. It's the only question really in life that we need to be asking what does a holy, righteous God do with an unclean, sinful people? We must know. I think Isaiah 6 gives us our answer. And it's more beautiful than we could ever imagine for ourselves. And so I think Isaiah 6 gives a lot of truths, a lot of lessons, but I want to highlight two of them this morning. The first is this. God's glory is an awe-inspiring scene. As we enter the throne room with Isaiah, we, we have to enter understanding the context that Isaiah is coming from. We've, we've just talked about that. Judah is under stress. They are not making the right decisions. And so as Isaiah comes into the throne room, we come into the room with him with this same understanding. And the first thing that we are given is that Isaiah enters the throne room and is confronted with a divine juxtaposition. Uzziah is dead and the Lord lives. Think about it for just a moment. Why is it important that as we come into the throne room, we need to know anything about King Uzziah, right? We're here because he's lame. You were so good for so long, and then in the last five years of your rule, you ruined it. I don't want to know anything about you. But obviously, the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah, is saying, no, you need to know about King Uzziah. 
you need to know about King Uzziah because the Bible, I think, is carefully shaping our view of God. And the Bible is telling us right here in verse 1, there is no other king on earth like God. There is no other king on, in, in, in the universe like God. Uzziah's reign, Uzziah's glory, Judah's hope in King Uzziah, it is only a memory. It's good days gone by. But the King of heaven reigns eternally. Even in verse 1, of Isaiah chapter 6, we are being taught a lesson that finite things provide only finite hope. Finite things only ever provide finite hope. So what is the purpose of being brought into the throne room? Why, why is Isaiah 6 here? And you do understand that it is really strange that Isaiah 6 and the content in this chapter is here and not in chapter one. It kind of makes sense to be like, hey, y'all, um, here's what God looks like. Here's who he is. Here's what he does. Here's what he thinks. But we don't get that. We get chapters one through five. And one through five is all about Isaiah understanding that the people of God in their forsaking of God are in peril. They are in so much danger, and their greatest threat is not actually Tiglath Pileser III. The greatest danger comes in Isaiah chapter 6 in the form of a God whose reign never ends. So, why are we here? Why are we being brought into the throne room? I do want you to understand something, that even though we are coming into the throne room through the eyes of Isaiah, if we really believe that the Word of God is living and active, then I want to ensure you that we ourselves, we have entered into the throne room. Make no mistake, we are standing before the God of Isaiah right now. So why are we here? It's really simple. We are here to meet God. We're here to learn that His throne is high above all other thrones. That even the greatest king of this earth sits under the feet of the king of heaven. We're here to behold His majesty and the splendor of His all-consuming robe. What even is that? And also, isn't like that not comfortable? You have a massive robe, and it just encompasses the entire temple? Yes. There's no robe like my robe. We're, we're, we're ushered into the throne room to see the absolute otherness, the transcendence of God in the seraphim. Apparently, in the throne room, there are bird-like things with man-like faces that 
I don't know, apparently they're shy because they cover their face and they obviously have nasty feet because they're covering those two. And by the way, they fly. Right? I don't know any other king or ruler that has that. Maybe you've got like a tiger on a chain beside your throne and like maybe you feed people to it. Yeah, that's cool. God has some sort of flying man-like thing that has six wings and by the way, we can't see their face or their feet. He is completely separate from any other reign or any other rule that could possibly be imagined. We are invited into the throne room to hear that he is unceasingly holy, holy, holy. The seraphim nonstop cry, holy, 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 holy. And it never ends. Yeah, maybe you got a, maybe you got a strong strapping lad that fans you with a palm leaf, but he gets tired. This king is unceasingly without stop, holy. And then we're being ushered into the throne room to witness the utter power of his kingship. The very sound of the seraphim's voice, the temple quakes and it is filled with smoke. In what other throne room does smoke appear and fill, fill the temple, and does the temple shake at the sound of the voice of the seraphim? There is none. But here's the truth of this, this chapter. Our imagination is only going to take us so far. And by the way, we already reached our limit. Why did I just spend the past three minutes explaining to you exactly what the Word of God says? It's because that's as far as we can go. Our imagination will take us so far, and then we stop. We, we, we reach a limit to what we can fathom of God's awe-inspiring glory. We, we reach a point where we can understand no more. So why give it? You know, for Isaiah, he does. He has something, uh, like, better than we do. He, he did actually get to see this with his own eyes. So why are we hearing about it? Why are we being given this imagery, and why are we being brought into this throne room to see all of these things? Why? If we can't even really comprehend what a seraphim is, if we can't even comprehend the fact that they say, holy, 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 nonstop, forever, and all eternity... If we can't even fathom a robe that actually has a train so long that it fills an entire temple, why are we here? I think the answer is actually glaringly clear. I think we've been brought into the throne room and we've been given this account to show us that God doesn't need us to attribute glory to Him. To show us that glory is simply who God is. We're brought here to learn that God didn't become glorious because Isaiah and we have been ushered into the throne room. 
We have been brought to this place not simply to worship God, but to see His glory that only He possesses. And that it stands completely independent of anything. What's the divine juxtaposition between Uzziah and the Lord of heaven? Uzziah can only be as glorious as long as he lives and has someone to attribute glory to him. And the Lord of heaven has never not been glorious. I want you to see that though this is a, a crazy picture, crazy in a good way, I want you to see that being brought into the throne room is God's grace to us because being brought here actually allows us and frees us from trying to find glory in the passing world that we live in. It allows us to simply stop looking for glory in things, in contexts, in circumstances, and to realize that true glory actually only lives in one place. It can only be found in one place, and it can only be found in one person. I remember, uh, it's been several years ago, I remember traveling to a, uh, a large Christian conference put on by Ligonier Ministries, and at a point during that conference, I found myself in a very small room, uh, a green room for the speakers of the conference, and um, I just, you know, I'm going to geek out for just a moment. You're going to be like, I don't even know who these people are. We don't care. That's fine. I don't care either. They're heroes. I found myself in a room full of theologians that, who have been highly influential to me. Now, I don't believe everything they believe, but they've been very influential in my life, especially early on in my call to ministry. And so I'm in this room, it's, it's small, and I'm standing here, and I'm, I'm standing as like still as I possibly can. I'm not quite sure that I'm breathing, and I'm just trying to be like as still as possible. Because standing in front of me is John MacArthur, Albert Moeller, and R.C. Sproul. And I was so scared that they might come up to me and ask me a question, like a complex question that I was not able to comprehend at the time, like, hey, sir, like, young man, what's your name? <laughs> I, my, my, friends, my friends call me R.C. Sproul. That's really weird because that's my name. I, I just found myself in this moment thinking, I don't belong here. <laughs> this, is, this is not my place. Right? There are all of these men, all of these theologians, all who have been influential in my life, and here, here am I. Why am I here? But here, in Isaiah chapter 6, in the presence of an infinitely greater glory than we could ever imagine, we learn that we are the invited special guests. We've actually been brought here into the glory of God. He has summoned us into this place to hear and to behold 
and to be enveloped by His glory. What is so earth-shattering to me about Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, is not the fact that my pea-sized brain can't comprehend what's happening. It's the fact that I have been invited to see that the Lord has looked upon me and asked me to enter into His glory. So when we're confronted with this glory, what are we to do? The second point is this. The presence of God's glory is both terrifying and thrilling. You have just witnessed in Isaiah chapter 5 the most appropriate reaction in all of the Bible. There is no better right action than Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5. Why? Because as Isaiah enters the throne room and he beholds these things, he fears for his life. He sees this scene of God's glory, and it is utter terror. You know, in in chapter 5, there's a Hebrew word that's translated lost, and that's just fine. And by the way, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar anyway, so who even cares? However, this Hebrew word translated lost has and carries with it the meaning of ruin. And so when Isaiah comes into the throne room and he sees the fullness of God and his glory, he says, woe is me for I am lost or I am ruined. I'm just going to tell you right now, if you have ever been confronted with the guilt and the weight and the burden of your sin, you have felt like a ruined person. I think all too often we are very familiar with what it means to be ruined. The circumstances of our life, the way that we have been brought up, the the ways that people have treated us throughout our life, sin has ruined us. In fact, Adam and Eve, before we were even a thought in their minds, but a thought in God's mind, they ruined us through their actions. We are an utterly ruined people. Our sin has consumed us in such a way that we are simply ruined, of no use of no purpose. But you want to know what Isaiah is actually talking about? He's not so much talking about the fact that he is ruined because he is a sinner in the presence of God. He's talking about the fact that he is now ruined because he knows who he is. He knows what he has brought with him into this room, and he now realizes, I'm not supposed to be here. At any moment, God is going to destroy me. I have been ruined. And Isaiah, is at, he, he's exactly right. He is exactly right. 
And so he does the only thing he can think to do. He cries out and he confesses that he is unclean. I'm not supposed to be here, God. I'm not a clean man. I do not dwell with a clean people. I am stained with sin. And the reason he says his lips are unclean is because your lips, they speak what is in your heart, and what is in your heart is all of you. And Isaiah simply says, there is no part of me, God, that is not stained with sin. And the thing that we should expect to happen after this moment, after this confession, is we should expect to see Isaiah killed. He has beheld the perfect glory of God, and he should now die. But it's in this moment... As Isaiah makes his his confession before God and before the seraphim, that something even more unimaginable than being ushered into the throne room happens. The scene changes. The scene changes. And you have this man who has just cried out. Woe is me, for I am lost. And we have to remember in the background is holy, holy, holy. And in the background of that is the temple shaking and filling with smoke. And then something happens. And and the way that I read it, this moment feels to me, you know that moment right before a big storm or if you're from like the Midwest when a tornado comes in and there's just this moment where it gets eerily silent before everything pops off. Do you know what I'm talking about? Quiet just descends on the earth. Well, in this moment, I only have to imagine that Isaiah is deafened by quiet. Because without even a word being spoken, one of the seraphim, who for all eternity has stood at the throne of God and cried, holy, 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 moves. He leaves his post and he moves. It's in this this moment where there's no command that we can discern here in the Word of God, where God has said, hold on, seraphim, I need you to do something for me. We're not given that. What we're given is utter silence. And I think it's in this moment where the seraphim, in an unspoken moment, moves, that we learn that at the very heart of who God is, is redemption and mercy and grace. 
the seraphim is so well acquainted with God. And, and we're, we're not just talking about, yeah, I mean, we've worked together for a while. Like, I know that he likes to eat boiled eggs on Thursdays, and so, like, I go have lunch outside the office, right? He doesn't know, like, God's quirks or, like, God's routines, The seraphim is apparently so acquainted with God and who he is that at the confession of Isaiah, the seraphim simply moves, he leaves his post, and he goes to the altar, grabs a coal, and cleanses Isaiah simply because the seraphim knows at the heart of who God is, is grace. And the unimaginable happens. Isaiah is not smited. He is forgiven. And so as we come into the throne room, what we learn is that a holy, holy, holy God is pleased to forgive unrepentant sinners. If we think the imagery of the throne room is mind-boggling, this is greater. That this God would be pleased to do this thing. The first time that I ever, I think, really grasped the holiness and glory of God happened, I think, around 2011. At this moment in time, I felt like God was calling me into vocational ministry. Um, I had just returned from Afghanistan. I was a, a freshman in college. I was two years older than everyone else. My, I, my whole life, I just felt like a loser. Everything was not good. It was not well. The only thing that I had going for me is that I was dating my future wife. But... Everything else seemed to be in shambles. I I just, I was not doing really, really well. And it's in this moment that I felt like God was calling me into vocational ministry. That is to, for the rest of your life, be a pastor. And this filled me with a, a great amount of anxiety and actual true, for the first time in my life, real terror. Like, terror like can't sleep at night, calling my grandparents, trying to get advice. I, I mean, it was, it was, it was so bad. <laughs> the, the reason for all of this, for this terror and this anxiety, boiled down to one thing, my past. You see, I was saved at the age of nine, and it wasn't until 10 years later that I was ever discipled. And so for 10 years of my Christian life, I roamed in the wilderness. And I I just want to tell you first, I am not a murderer. I have not killed people. But like all of you, I've done so many things that I'm not proud of and that are a part of my filth, a, a part of my uncleanness that Isaiah felt. And I was ridden with guilt. And so when I sensed God was calling me into ministry, I just kept saying to him over and over and over again, God, um, you've got the wrong person. 
maybe someone else had this phone number, but like it's me now. I don't know who you're trying to get a hold of, but I know that it's not me. You have the wrong person. God, I don't think you're very smart. Me? Okay, I know you're not smart. And just for two weeks straight, I just tried to convince the Lord, you can't use someone like me. You, you cannot use me. I am an unclean person. I dwell amongst unclean people. My life has been a wreck. You cannot use me. Well, one Sunday, while sitting in church, the pastor was preaching a sermon. I have no idea what it was about, and it was the most influential sermon in my whole life. I'm, I kid you not, the most influential sermon in my entire life I can remember nothing about. Because he said one thing that I can't really remember, but I remember in that moment sobbing. And for the next however long, I just sobbed there in church because I realized something. I am so quick to forget the grace of God. God was calling me to do something, and all I could say is, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm not supposed to be here. I don't belong here. The reality is, is you may be feeling that this morning. You are in a church, listening to church things and church people, and you're thinking, I don't belong here. In fact, I wish I hadn't sat up so far so I could have slipped out sooner. Maybe one of your biggest hang-ups right now is that you feel God is unable or unwilling to forgive someone as filthy as you. You can be an unbeliever and feel that way, and you can be a believer and feel that way. That you just can't imagine a good, gracious, righteous, holy, holy, holy God who would actually forgive someone as filthy as you. But the great hope of this passage is that we aren't asked to come to God in our cleanliness, but in and with our filth. The holy, holy God who sits high and lifted it up, the one whose train fills the temple, the one whose holiness is tripartite, the one whose glory fills all of the earth, the one who the worship of him causes the temple to shake and smoke, he wants you to come to him with your filth. Because grace is at the heart of who God is. As we end, I, I want to ask you a question. When Isaiah's guilt was taken away, do you know what happened to it? I think oftentimes, especially in Christian circles, we, we think that forgive simply means forget. But I want to tell you, as far as God is concerned, that's not what forgiveness means. Isaiah 6, chapter 7 says, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. 
Isaiah tells us that his sin wasn't merely forgotten, it was atoned for. That is, his sin was taken from him, removed from him, and put somewhere else. The beauty of God is that we don't simply come into the presence of his glory and he says, yeah, hey, uh, don't worry about it. (laughs) Y'all good? No. He takes divine action. Later in Isaiah chapter 53, turn with me there, Isaiah tells us exactly where his sin was placed. Isaiah here talking about Jesus, who we will later meet in the New Testament. Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 6, this is Isaiah speaking, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He, has dis- he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not." Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. What does the throne room teach us? What does Isaiah want us to know? That we have been called into the presence of a holy, glorious God, not to simply fear, but to praise him for the fact that he is in his grace, willing to receive us in and cleanse us by the taking of our sin and placing it on the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ, and crushing him. God does not merely forget our sin. He does not merely forgive our sin. He destroys it. And we realize in the presence of a holy, 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 glorious God, is exactly where we are supposed to be. So what does Judah need to do? What are they to do? What should they do in light of what Isaiah has called them in this book? Well, the answer for them is the answer for us. We must confess our sin to the Lord, and we must trust that Jesus will take our sin and that he will cleanse us. And that we can and must place our hope in Him alone to do this. Because at the heart of who God is, is redemption, mercy, and grace. Trust Him today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the grace that you have extended to us in showing us who you are, that you have borne your fullness to us, not to destroy us, but to call us to repentance. 
Oh, Father God, I pray that believer and unbeliever alike today in this moment in light of who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be would cry out in repentance to you and that we would throw ourselves at the feet of your throne and that you would be pleased to save us because, God, you alone hold all glory and you alone through your Son, Jesus Christ, will be exalted forevermore. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.